Hello and welcome to Opinionated Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. Today, we're going to be rounding up some of the most interesting news and articles from across the site over the last couple of weeks. Joining me on this mission are my colleagues, Laura Lounsdown and Lucy Lawrence. How are you both? Very well, good, thank, thank you. you. Yep. Good, great to have you on board. On today's roundup, we, well, we've kind of unintentionally ended up with a kind of rough theme. I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm stretching here, but I feel there's a rough theme of physiology in the natural world. So we're going to take a look at studies involving the microbiota that live in our stomachs, the anti-cancer genomes of elephants, and we'll even finish off by hearing about how the phases of the immune may affect our sleep. Um, but I thought I might kick us off by talking about some stretchy brains. How does that sound to you both? That sounds, sounds good. interesting. Yeah, stretchy brains. Yes, yes. So uh, th this study is from Flinders University in Australia. And as with all the studies we'll be discussing today, you'll be able to see it in the show notes uh, below this podcast. And uh, the headline for the, the article is the marsupial brain benefits from a stretchy shape. Now, uh, marsupials, as I actually needed reminding at the start of this, I have to remind, I have to uh, admit, are mammals. And <laughs> um, as mammals, they have uh, some of the most advanced, biggest brains in the animal kingdom. Now, the way that mammalian brains are shaped is a really important aspect of this because it's widely thought that large brains and changing skull shapes are what's permitted the evolutionary advantages given to mammals. Now, I, I looked into what kind of sizes we're talking about here because I did look and see that a kangaroo's brain actually only weighs about 56 grams. So I was thinking, is that really? I mean, they're pretty big, right? That seems tiny because humans, of course, have the the heavyweight 1.3 something kilogram brain. So I did a little bit of uh, rudimentary maths here. So if any of our listeners are are quicker on the mark here and tell me I'm, I'm doing something wrong, please do let us know. Uh, but I worked out that a kangaroo's brain weighing at 56 grams is about 0.16% of your average kangaroo's weight of 35 kilos. Now, if we go a bit further back in history uh, to the time of dinosaurs, your big diplodocus weighed 11,700 kilograms and had a 50 gram brain. So that's 0.00042% the Diplodocus's body weight. So a kangaroo brain is relatively 380 times as big as a percentage of body mass as that of a Diplodocus. So it's kind of a good example of how marsupials and mammals more generally have evolved to have these relatively big brains. And uh, clearly shape plays an element in that because we, we see uh, that they adopt a, a number of different kind of shapes. So in this study, it's, it's quite cool what they did. They developed... Um, these, these casts of the brains, kind of digital casts of the brain and the, the cranium that they're housed in. So uh, they called these endocasts and in total they generated 84 of these marsupial endocasts, which were taken from 57 different marsupial species, including some fossilized ones that don't exist anymore, like the marsupial lion, which sounds pretty cool, never heard of that. Uh, and these endocasts were essentially a good way for these researchers to be able to look at the shape of these marsupial brains and see what makes them so well suited to being packed into uh, different head shapes. Now, when they analyzed the results, they found a huge variation, which isn't really surprising when you consider the, the variation in these, um, in these species. So 
for example, the marsupial mole's brain, uh, which I get, I, I learned a lot about marsupials here, folks. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I, <laughs> you. You seem to know your stuff, Rory. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I, it's impressive. Prior to this, I thought it was pretty much wombat and the kangaroo, but it turns out we've got the marsupial <laughs> mole. We've got something called a vombatiform. That's with a V, not a W, which seems to be some kind of fossilized wombat. Uh, yeah. and, and that thing's brain is a tube rather than anything spherical. Um, and what they kind of concluded from their analysis is brain shape is astonishingly plastic. So, uh, you know, this, this family group, this, this evolutionary group of um, marsupials is in terms of evolutionary time skills, relatively short in its divergence. So the fact that they're able to see these huge varieties in skull shape and brain shape, even over this really short evolutionary time scale was something they really remarked on as being notable. Uh, they noted that the, the fossil brains, as, as we might expect, given how tiny brains or diplodocus, as we analyzed earlier, were, uh, they have a significantly smaller cerebral size. So um, that's something to consider. And they also found out that the variation in brain shape that they noticed was mainly due to differences in the, the kind of squishedness of the brain, if that makes sense. So some of them had, were very sort of short and rounded and squished, and other ones were stretched out and more smooth. And this was the, the biggest variation they saw. One interesting, uh, I think this is the only time anyone's ever said on this podcast, interesting to do with a statistical concept, but they had an <laughs> uh, interesting statistical concept in the study called the Procrustes distance. Now, for any anyone who cares out there, this is the square root of the sum of square differences in the positions of the landmarks in two shapes. So it's essentially a statistical distance that measures the difference between two uh, shapes in, in, in a space. Now, I kind of wondered where they'd gotten the name Procrustes from, and it turns out it's from Greek legend. Now, in Greek legend, Procrustes was a rogue smith and bandit from the region of Attica who attacked people by either stretching them or cutting off their legs to force them to be the exact size of this iron bed he used as a, as a measuring rod. So I guess that's kind of where the, it comes from, is the, the, the difference between two different shapes and whether you need to chop off people's legs or shorten a skull or brain to get it to fit into an area. Um, so that's an interesting divergence, but ultimately they found that the brains, I think the, the term one of the researchers used, which you can read in the article, was that they were about as flexible as toothpaste within a tube. Um, the more squished brains were also not necessarily uh, bigger ones, which is commonly what's seen in primates. You know, the human brain is so folded and squished up because it's so sizable as compared to other primates. Um, and they also finally concluded that brain function might not be a, a, a a good thing that you can determine from brain shape. They, they noted, for example, there's no correspondence of the, the brain shape with movement patterns. So for example, if the animal uh, glides, hops, walks on all fours, I mean, marsupials do a lot of that. So um, I think it was good that they analyzed that, but a really interesting study. And I hope everyone uh, listening can have a read of the, the paper as well. That sounds really interesting. I think, I just feel like it's hard to comprehend a, a tube shaped brain or a flat brain. I just, I was still thinking about that too. Yeah. <laughs> but, I know, um, I know, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's really cool looking at the uh, skull shape. I won't get too political here, but um, this is a, a classic example of a study that you can't find on the publisher's website because it's uh, hidden behind a paywall, but I was able to find it in a pre-published state on BioArchive. So that's the link we'll include. But if you go through that, you can see all the different brain casts they created from all these different animals. And yeah, you can see a, a tube-shaped brain for yourself. So I do recommend you check it out. Yeah, sounds good. I was, I was quite surprised actually when you said about the fact that 
the way an animal moves doesn't influence its shape because you think there's quite I guess there's quite a lot of different movement patterns oh exactly yeah something that you know moves slowly and more delicately compared to perhaps a kangaroo or you know a rabbit that hops or things like that you'd think that that would impact or have some kind of influence over the shape of the brain because Yeah. But, they, yeah. they, they seem to suggest it was more purely down to the, the skull shape and that perhaps skull shape wasn't as tied to, to movement patterns. Um, hmm. But uh, yeah, it's, it was an interesting finding as well, I thought. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Lucy, I know you've been looking at uh, the uh, anti-cancer properties of elephants. So yeah, tell us about that. This is like science fiction, except it's real. Um, And essentially what it is, is that elephants have this incredibly low rate of developing cancer, which is great, of course. But what's so fascinating about it is that it just doesn't make any sense. So if you think about humans, for example, uh, we're made of some 30 trillion cells, along with microbes and a whole kind of cellular orchestra to keep us going, like to keep our hearts beating, to keep our guts gurgling and to keep our muscles firing. But as we grow older, our cells go through what's known as the cell cycle, which means they basically grow and they divide. But every single time one of our human cells divides, it has to copy its, I think it's 6 billion base pairs of DNA. And inevitably, there's a chance that it'll make some mistakes. So these mistakes are called somatic mutations, and it's these that then lead to cancer. So humans have about a 50% risk of being diagnosed with cancer in a lifetime. But the longer you live, the longer your cells have to d- have to divide, and the more opportunities for cancer occur. And the same applies for big bodies. So I was having a look, and larger dog breeds, for example, have higher rates of cancer than smaller breeds. And crazily even taller people have a slightly higher risk than shorter people so if we look at an elephant's lifespan depending on several factors they can live to be up to 70 years old and african elephants are the largest of all land animals and can weigh anywhere between i think two and seven tons they're they're just huge so taking all of that into consideration you'd think that surely there was a risk of their risk of developing cancer should be much larger than ours yeah they should be screwed (laughs) exactly but they're not elephants are far less prone to getting cancer than we are and that's why it didn't make any sense and that's why I chose to uh, talk about this specific article which you can find on our website um, called investigating how elephants evolved to become resistant to cancer so essentially uh, a team of scientists looked into the discovery behind this mismatch of organism size and cancer rates and it's called Pito's paradox and uh, the scientists found that it all comes down to the elephant's genes so using the cells from elephants the researchers looked to see how the cells responded to cancer causing DNA damage and what they saw was this rapid suicide by the elephant cells because the elephant cells died as soon as their DNA was damaged there was no risk at all of the elephant cells ever becoming cancerous but it then led to another question of what on earth was causing the elephant cells to commit suicide so quickly and they found that elephants actually had extra copies of a tumor suppressing gene so essentially they have extra copies of a gene that stops tumors from forming and it's called p53 and crazily elephants have 20 copies of this p53 gene whereas humans only have one 
So you can kind of see where this is going. And um, from an evolutionary perspective, it's even more fascinating because it tells us why elephants so rarely develop cancer. Um, so as the cells in animals' bodies divide, whether that's human or elephant or otherwise, the P53 gene recognizes damage and then goes, okay, like what are our options here? Ones with small issues can be repaired, but if they've got too much damage, then the cell becomes a cancer risk. So P53 basically orders them to be killed instead. So it just nips any tumors in the bud at all. And then to add to this as well, the scientists also started to notice that several copies of an LIF gene, which essentially make a protein that stops tumors growing, um, except nearly all of the LIF genes were inactive, so they were missing these critical parts that stop them from being used by the cell, all apart from one, uh, LIF6, and it had literally been brought back from the dead. And it also points to the reason as to why elephants have this cancer resistance. And I'd read that when the team investigated like a little bit further, they assumed that elephants had faced some sort of selection pressures. So at some point in the development of the modern elephant, the gene had been reactivated, which I thought was crazy. So I was, I'm going to get slightly technical here, but essentially LIF6 is transcriptionally upregulated by P53 and LIF6 codes for a protein that translocates to the cell's mitochondria. Once it reaches the cell's mitochondrion, it causes the outer mitochondrial membrane pore to open, which leads to mitochondrial dysfunction, basically just meaning that the cell dies. So the researchers are hoping that they'll be able to look into it a little bit further and figure out what the exact molecular mechanisms of how LIF6 induces death. And I guess we hope this could help us to therapeutically target cancer, especially mm -hmm. if they can find ways of developing drugs that mimic the behavior of LAF6. Mm -hmm. So I guess the goal here is to not only get nature to inform us about cancer therapies, but to also give us like an, a fresh perspective of cancer, because it took about 55 million years of elephant evolution to design and create this perfect cancer-fighting protein. So I guess nature has a lot to teach us if we know where to look. And as a side note, it also helps provide an even better appreciation for biodiversity. So in our current climate, of course, I personally think we need all the reasons for conservation that we can get. And I think it's a pretty fantastic one. I feel that Laura's our uh, cancer research editor. So yeah, I know. <laughs> she'll be able to give all the, the sensible insight questions into exactly the molecular mechanisms and such like thing that just strikes me is like what is the selection pressure because you know cancer is obviously such a huge burden on on humanity but it probably has been allowed to persist right because it tends to strike later in life after people have already procreated had kids mm -hmm. passed on their uh, genes so do you think there was some cancer for elephants that killed them off before they were of adult age i mean i guess i need to know how long it takes an elephant to become uh, able to have little elephant babies but yeah. uh, <laughs> I think my knowledge. probably one of the major hypotheses was something was happening in early life making the cells more susceptible to cancer but now it might just be down to a simpler matter of size that these elephants needed to grow so large that they simply had more cells for something to go wrong in um, so that was kind of their selection pressure that mm -hmm. they were growing bigger so we just need to get absolutely massive as a species and then eventually <laughs> we'll our genes out. will say we'll figure right, it out. cancer let's sort this oh. 
Um, now, Laura, you shared with me after we, we saw that Lucy was going to talk about this, we shared a, a really interesting blog with me about uh, the most disgusting animal. I mean, blobfish is also pretty gross, but uh, your naked mole rat, you yeah. shared with me an interesting blog you'd done about mm-hmm. this. Can you talk about that briefly? Yeah, so um, there's a small burrowing rodent called the naked mole rat. Um, I'll obviously, I'll pop a link um, when we share this podcast. We'll, we'll obviously include uh, the, the interview. It looks so just you can obscene. Have a look at, there's a few Sorry, pictures. just obscene. Yeah. It's quite a scary looking guy, but they, they are incredible. So um, they're hairless, obviously, the naked element of the mole rat. Um, and they've got a lot of attention um, from researchers and the scientific community in general, just because they have an unusually long lifespan. And they have similar to the elephant they have they have the capacity to resist cancer um they can also which i just think is incredible um survive for hours in environments with very low oxygen or without oxygen for 18 minutes which i just wow. think this little naked mole rat like unkillable in, in, yeah literally. underappreciated <laughs> <laughs> um so they were looking at, so um, I spoke with someone called um, Ewan St. John Smith, and he works at the University of Cambridge. And he, um, him and his team have been looking at the naked mole rat and specifically um, naked mole rat cells um, to see whether they're resistant to cancer altogether or they do have the capacity to become cancerous, but there's something happening within those animals um, to quickly nip it in the bud and you know and to, to stop that that cancer so until he I spoke with him probably midway through last year so until his team started investigating the assumption was that these naked mole rat cells couldn't become cancerous but actually what they found is that they can but there's something happening um that that stops you know they are they're identified really quickly and killed off um so they're now looking to see obviously what that mechanism is. They're not entirely sure what's happening there. Um, so perhaps, you know, the immune system is hypervigilant and can identify those cells and kill them off really quickly. Or perhaps um, it might be the environment in which the um, naked mole rat cells live. So there's something happening within there that prevents the cells from proliferating. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of questions still remain unanswered, but it's just another example of how obviously this naked mole rat is doing something incredible and uh i got yeah uh, sorry laura i got the sense from the papers you sent over about that that this was quite like a a seismic change yeah. in naked mole rat physiology <laughs> yeah. understanding yeah. so they've done a response to the yeah. um paper that ewan and his team published the original um group that actually had originally said that obviously these cells couldn't become cancerous and actually then looked back at their research and actually agreed with the new finding that Ewan's group had, had um, discovered that, you know, there is, they can become cancerous, but there's something there that's, that's killing off these cancerous cells before they can, you know, obviously proliferate and do more damage. So yeah, it was quite a big turning point, I think. Um, yeah. Cause it's, it's crazy. I've seen no. it uh, as I was doing a little bit of research into it. I've seen species like whales and bats as well. They also kind of, use different strategies to kind of mm. get this cancer resistance it, there's a lot of animals out there that we could sort of learn from yeah definitely so um yeah it's just really interesting and i guess obviously the um 
the news, obviously, uh, the elephant story, they mentioned, obviously, giant sloth and ancient mega armadillos as well. So there are some more examples, I guess, that perhaps they've got some resistant mechanisms there as well. So very, very cool. Just as long as none of these require us to actually look like naked mole rats, <laughs> I'm more than happy to nick all the genetic secrets. Um, <laughs> but, um, Laura, you had an, another great story uh, about the this is actually uh, directly directly relevant to human study uh, about microbiomes. I, I really want to hear yeah, more about that. So, um, the you know the the piece I wanted to highlight um, today was about um, fecal transplant and how it can boost um, a patient's response to immunotherapy. So, cancer cancer patients, um, fecal transplant. Yep, we're talking about poo. Um, <laughs> It's just the jazzy word for it. So um, there was a recent um, study that was carried out by researchers at uh, UPMC Hillman Cancer Centre and the National Cancer Institute. Um, and they conducted a phase two study. So phase two studies are kind of designed, they're, they're human phase, they're clinical um, phase studies, and their, their aim is to determine the effectiveness of a treatment um, and to identify any adverse effects. So they set out to um, do a phase two study looking at patients with advanced um, melanoma so skin cancer Um, and they wanted to look at whether by changing the gut microbiome using this fecal transplant whether it's possible to actually alter a patient's response to immunotherapy Um, so advanced melanoma skin cancer patients um, there's actually about 40% failure rate um, for immunotherapy for this type of cancer. So um, obviously that's, you know, that percentage is quite high. Um, So what they did was um, they um, identified patients that had responded well um, to to a specific type of immunotherapy called anti-PD-1. And just for a bit of background, you're probably like, what is (laughs) anti-PD-1? Um, so it is um, PD-1 is program cell death one receptor. Um, so this type of therapy is a, an immunomodulator mm-hmm. um, and tumors often um, manipulate specific checkpoints in the body to defend themselves from attack by the immune system. So that is, it's their way of being sneaky and, you know, trying to evade detection. Um, so checkpoint inhibitors like the anti-PD-1 therapy um, are designed to reduce the reduce immune suppressive mechanisms um, so it means that the immune systems can still react to that cancer um, so immune cells have a um, specific receptor on the surface called PD-1 um, and then there's specific ligands that are expressed by cancer cells, which is PD-L1s. So obviously when that cancer cell um, binds to that PD-1 receptor on the immune cell, it can quieten down the immune response. So um, the therapy is designed to attach to the receptor so the cancer cell can't access it. So the immune system stays vigilant. Um, so they... Um, So a fecal um, microbiota transplant um, is a procedure in which fecal matter or stool is collected from a tested donor. So in this case, a patient that responded really well to the immunotherapy. Um, It's typically mixed with saline or another solution, 
strained which oh it just sounds gross <laughs> and it's infused back into the the colon of the um you know of, of the person that's not responding um, who thought that up yeah I was just I thinking. know I know but someone did it's just it yeah. seems to work <laughs> therapeutic enema it's just the most yeah. Yeah. bizarre but yeah Sorry. yeah no, no, no. Um, so obviously this fecal, um, I'm going to call it FMT because I think that sounds nicer. So the FMT, um, it, can, it consists of obviously some kind of bacterial flora um, in these uh, patients that are responding and that's being transferred into the patient that isn't responding in hopes that, that, that that's, those species of microbes will positively influence um, their ability to respond to this immune therapy. Um, so what they found was it was only a small study. So there's only 15 um, patients that took part, but out of those 15, um, six of them um, showed tumor reduction. So reduction in the size of their tumors or disease stabilization. So it meant that their disease didn't worsen wow. and it lasted for more than a year. Um, so, you know, they're quite positive findings um, and there were only really minor side effects experienced by um, the patients as well, which were, uh, mainly fatigue um mm-hmm. so I just think it's quite incredible how you know the the, the microbiota the the you know the bacteria viruses fungi things in in your body that can have such a, a significant impact on you know the way our body responds to different treatments it's so cool mm. like just unbelievable really that it would have any effect so the fact that I mean it's not just cancer you know I've, I've seen studies of a similar nature reported in my own field studying um various neurological conditions but this is a, it's a really really remarkable finding mm, yeah definitely and i know obviously i think i spoke in a previous podcast about some other studies um but they were i think those ones were done in mouse models so obviously the fact that it's now at a clinical level and that they've you know they're testing it in you know phase two studies is quite um, exciting I guess mm. um, and uh, the, the authors did note that ultimately the goal is to replace this FMT with you know a pill formation I was just going to ask administration that, yeah. <laughs> I didn't um, know if it was an odd question saying oh could it potentially <laughs> go in a pill instead <laughs> um, yeah so yeah that is something that was obviously on their mind probably you know if this as you know if this moves towards phase three and potentially an approved method to support immune therapy um, efficacy. So um, yes, that's on their mind too. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Um, I thought I might finish us off with uh, an altogether more uh, out there sounding study about the phases of the moon. Um, this is moving away from uh, perhaps cutting edge medicine, but into a, a nonetheless fascinating area, which is our uh, physiological interactions with uh, moon phases and uh, this is an area which has attracted a lot of research over the years not all of it high quality research but it's it's a, an, an area that's persisted and the study I'm talking about today is a collaboration between the University of Washington Yale University and a group from the National University of Quilmes in Argentina so uh, back in the day and I'm talking a long time ago when we were hunter-gatherers the deal was when the sun went down and the moon came up uh, you had some moonlight, but if you wanted to keep on going and keep walking around trying to hunt things, you'd probably get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger or something. So generally, when the moon came up, people went to bed and stayed asleep. Now, obviously, with the advent of 
lovely bright screens playing Netflix binges. We don't do that anymore. We stay up much later and sleep for less time and go to bed later. Um, but the, the team behind this study wanted to have a look at uh, how our sleep patterns change with that of the, the moon's phases. So um, just terminology wise, because I did need to brush up on this, you've got the full moon, which is when you, you can see the whole face of it and it's nice and bright. And then you've got the new moon, which is the opposite when you can just see a, a tiny sliver of it and it's, there's, there's much less moonlight coming off the face of the moon. Uh, so as the, the moon waxes and wanes between um, these points, the, the team studied the dynamics of people's sleep and the, the study population they used is quite interesting. They used a, a group of 98 people uh, who were, were taken from um, a group in Argentina, the indigenous Western Toba and Com community. Uh, they were able to divide that group of 100 individuals into three uh, populations. One who lived in an urban setting, which had electricity. One who was in a kind of mixed setting, which had not 24-hour access to electricity, but still was able to have some uh, not artificial light, and then a group who lived entirely uh, without electrical light. So we're just in a, a totally rural setting. Now, uh, the interesting thing was they found that when they measured their sleep patterns using activity bracelets, that people's activity around bedtime did in fact change in line with moon phases. So what they noted is that uh, people would tend to go to bed later and be more active at night on days leading up to the full moon when the body, they hypothesized, would be preparing for there being more light in the evening and having the, the potential to be more active with that moonlight. Now, I, 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 you know, I think it's a, a really fascinating finding because it was one that surprisingly to the researchers persisted between these three populations. So initially they thought they'd see this relationship, this sort of oscillation as the, the moon's waxed and waned in the rural population, but maybe not in the, the urban population. But in fact, although it was slightly weaker for the people in the urban scenario, nonetheless, there was still this repeated notation, even amongst individuals, that their sleep would be shorter during these brighter evenings and longer uh, when there was less moonlight. Um, so, you know, this is a really interesting finding, sure, but I, I did a bit of research and noted that the, the urban population, they had uh, taken their the data from um, lived in a town in, in northern Argentina, which still was just a, a small town of 19,000 people. So it's no surprise that the researchers then wanted to find out what happens if we look at people in a properly urban setting. So they went for Seattle, so a metropolitan population, millions, city population, half a million, big, big city. And uh, the population they used here was a data taken from a previous study of University of Washington undergrads. So we have 464 students here. And again, they looked at their activity around uh, moon times. And even though these students probably, I mean, you know, you guys remember being students, probably never even saw the moon when they were locked up in their, their dorm rooms or whatever at night. Uh, nonetheless, there was still this, uh, albeit slightly weaker, but still this oscillation was seen in the same way it was for that population in northern Argentina, which I think is really remarkable. That's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, the fact that they're so different, like such different settings and different communities, and that there was still that, obviously, that consistency across them. Yeah, that's surprising. I think there were some limitations to the study. Uh, in, you know, I, I did note that the, the group from the University of Washington, that data was taken from a previous study. And in science, that's a capital letters here, bad thing. We don't like doing that. We want to have all the data taken from the same study because 
measurement uh, techniques vary, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But it does happen a lot. Um, and what they did noted did note is that in that previous study, when the data was analyzed in a different way, I think the, the difference was previously they just took it as different snapshots. So at the, the new moon, the full moon, and a, a particular point in the wax-wane cycle without looking at the, the whole oscillation. That time when the researchers analyzed the same data, they didn't find an association. So clearly there's still a lot of different findings in, in the field and there's a, a lot of divergence in the data. And um, when we, we shared this on our uh, our great Facebook group, NNR, uh, Neuroscience News and Research Group on Facebook, uh, a good comment that came in noted that activity places might not be the best way of measuring uh, sleep because you know it's, it's a measurement of movement, right, rather than um, mm-hmm. you know directly if if someone's awake or asleep. And you know they that commenter had suggested what about EEG as a as a way of measuring this, but of course I guess if someone's wearing an EEG helmet, they're probably not going to be sleeping very naturally either. So that's definitely a challenge with this kind of study is is um, measuring how naturalistic the settings are but i think given the the broad range of samples they've taken here i think it's a a pretty remarkable study nonetheless it certainly adds to a a pretty uh, divergent field uh, one that's still pretty uh, contradictory with some of the studies but nonetheless it's a, a good study to add to that body of work that sounds really do they know exactly how the sleep is synchronized with the moon phases have they is that still kind of a big question to so they, they showed some, I, I, I did find this part of the paper more confusing to read. They showed that in the more rural populations in Argentina, but not the urban population, there were two um, ways that the cycle was, was fit to the, the moon phases. So there was a, an oscillation over 30 days, as, as the, the moon cycle would be, and then a second oscillation over 15 days. Um, whereas for the urban population, only that 30-day cycle remained, but um, you can take a look at the paper, which we'll again share, and see that uh, really lovely curve that that they managed to fit pretty much all their participants to, um, with uh, yeah, as I said, the their duration of sleep um, minimizing just before the the peak of the full moon, and then becoming longer as uh, as the light was lessened uh, towards the new moon. Wonder how it affects when you wake up. Well, this was another thing. Yeah, they, they did actually analyze this as well. It's a great question. And they said that there was no association between sleep offsets so waking up and uh, and the phase of the moon. And how they rationalized this was that uh, whilst bright moonlight might be something that keeps you feeling more active and awake at night, uh, bright moonlight later in the evening is less likely to wake you up. Mm-hmm. So they, they noted that whilst things peaked just before um the the full moon just after the after the full moon the the moon rises a lot later and so there wasn't that same connection then and there there wasn't that same connection between sleep offsets so it seems that the most important uh, part of this is the the rising of the moon in the early part of the evening and the availability of moonlight in that early part of the evening i also think there has to be you know some consideration of the weather and the you know i'd, I'd love to see a study that was actually able to some way measure the the strength of that moonlight but you know clearly if they're looking at university of washington students locked up in dorms perhaps that's not important <laughs> this might be a stupid question or perhaps you know one that's redundant because we're now you know looking at this in humans but has this been looked at in other species and other animals whether that this kind of that's a great question i i can't say they talked about it in the paper but you know given that we've seen that 
you know, we've got a lot to learn from elephants and naked bull rats and all these other animals. Perhaps we should uh, take a look at it in this context as well. Eh? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, I think that is just about all the time we have for our roundup today, but I think we've touched on some really interesting findings. So I'll give a big thank you again to Laura and Lucy for joining me today. Thank you both. Thanks, Rory. Thanks for having me. Now, we'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with another Opinionated Science podcast, which will be focusing on microplastics, but it'll be another few weeks until we're back with another discussion podcast. But until then, please stay tuned to Technology Networks for all your latest scientific news, and please do like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. Please comment as well and let us know what you think about our findings. Don't keep your opinions to yourself. Bye for now.